0: It's Thursday, September 8th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, hail is getting bigger and becoming more common to more areas, but we still know relatively little about it. Plus, a possibly complete dinosaur skeleton with intact fossilized skin has been discovered in Alberta, and a very brief historical perspective on the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, as well as some of the names King Charles III could have chosen to go by instead. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Growing up in Texas, hail was a normal facet of our frequent thunderstorms. I paid more attention to the size estimates of hail than to the forecasted inches it was supposed to rain. I remember several times when storms hit in the mid-afternoon, the school would hold us back, not letting us leave to walk home until the golf-ball-sized hail warnings passed. Moving to New York City over a decade ago, it was strange to me at first to experience rain without frozen pellets. It's still atypical for hail to occur here, but anecdotally it does seem to be increasing. I've witnessed hail at least three times here during the pandemic, despite rarely ever seeing it before that. And turns out, I'm not just making it up risk assessment firm Verisk put out a report recently stating that the region in the U.S. susceptible to hail storms has grown wider in the past several years, stretching from Hail Alley in the middle of the continent to the eastern states. Validating my unique childhood experience, Texas, according to the report, still tops the list of states with the most property damage from hail, with over three times the property damage of the next highest state. Although that's partially just due to the state's size. Percentage-wise, it's tied with Indiana. But in fact, my home county ranks second in Texas for the most hail-caused property damage, so I'm really not making it up when I say I grew up thinking that hail almost always accompanied rain. But despite more property damage from hail in 2021 compared to the year prior, and despite ever more geographic areas affected by hailstorms, the actual number of hail events is actually decreasing. Or at least in 2021, the number of hailstorms dropped down below the 10-year average. But hail itself, the hailstones, might be getting bigger and the increase in property damage is also because hail is falling in more places with more property, more highly populated areas, etc. But why is hail getting bigger? You'd be tempted to blame the climate crisis. And you might not be wrong, but it's not just that. And it turns out we don't have too much data on hail at all, so the increasing size of hail is kind of just a big question mark at this point. Quoting the New York Times, although the changing climate probably plays a role in these trends, weather experts say a more complete explanation might have something to do with the self-stoking interplay of human behavior and scientific discovery. As neighborhoods sprawl into areas that experience heavy hail and greater hail damage, researchers have sought out large hailstones and documented their dimensions, stirring public interest and inviting further study. End quote. The Times also listed a whole bunch of regional records that have been set for largest hailstone in recent years. Between 2018 and last year, Alabama, Colorado, Texas, Australia, Canada, Argentina, and all of Africa set new records for largest hailstones. That one in Argentina was bigger than a honeydew melon. So are they getting bigger or are we just paying more attention? One thing the Times points out is that even just getting accurate measurements of large hailstones is tough, because you usually have to rely on eyewitness reports or maybe phone photos from civilians. If you're lucky, maybe they kept the hailstone by putting it in the freezer, but even then sublimation can shrink the hailstone. One record-breaking hailstone from South Dakota shrunk three inches in a man's freezer before the National Weather Service was able to send someone out to officially assess it a few weeks later. As director of the Northern Hail Project, Julian Brimelow told The Times, quote, hail data are terrible. It's probably one of the worst data sets on the planet, end quote. And part of the trouble is needing to predict when and where hail will fall. And this can be done with weather modeling, but isn't always the most accurate. So people like meteorologist Kiel Ortega have been working for years to improve modeling with grassroots outreach, watching weather reports and literally calling up businesses in the path of storms to ask for updates. And when they can actually get to one of the places to collect hailstones, scientists can then analyze them and improve the models. Another group of researchers has been using 3D scans of hailstones to then recreate them and study the recreated hailstones in the lab, calculating things like their fall speed based on their size and what kind of damage they can enact. And that damage is usually the only part people really care about. But meteorologist Matt Kumdian says we need to understand every step of a hailstones journey to better predict where, when, and how large hailstones will fall. Quoting again from the Times, Almost all hail is created in supercells, or storms with updrafts of rising air that slowly rotate. Small pieces of ice, called embryos, get swept into those updrafts like a fountain of particles, says Kumjian. The embryos smash into water droplets, becoming hailstones that continue to grow until they're too heavy to stay suspended and then fall to the ground. Each detail is a clue. A cloudy hailstone layer indicates that the water froze instantly on the embryo, trapping air bubbles inside. Clear ice means the water had time to expand around the embryo before freezing. Spherical hailstones are thought to have tumbled around in the supercell. Spiky ones shoot like comets through the storm. End quote. And the biggest ones, baseball or melon sized actually aren't as concerning as medium-sized ones like golf ball-sized hailstones, because the bigger ones are more rare. The medium ones can fall in such high concentrations that they can really do a lot of damage. However, Kumjian says it's useful to study the giant ones as a sort of worst-case scenario analysis, helping them understand supercell dynamics more thoroughly and refine forecasting models. But could those bigger ones start coming in higher concentrations, and how big could a hailstone get? Kumjian and Brimelow think the biggest a hailstone could ever get is three pounds in weight and a foot in diameter. Pretty enormous for a ball of ice falling from the sky without warning, but I guess it is good to know there is, theoretically, a limit to these fairly mysterious ice missiles. Paleontologists in Alberta may have discovered close to a complete hadrosaur skeleton, but not just the skeleton, some of the skin appears to be preserved as well, making this so-called dinosaur mummy very rare indeed. The fossil was first spotted protruding from a hillside in Dinosaur Provincial Park by a volunteer named Terry Caskey. Biologist Caskey was volunteering with Dr. Brian Pickles of the University of Reading and Dr. Phil Bell of the University of New England in Australia as the team sought new locations for student digs in the upcoming school year. Caskey told CBC she was actually looking for T-Rex teeth when she made the discovery. Hadrosaurs are common to the park, which is one of the richest sites for dinosaur fossils in the world, but a specimen so well-preserved is certainly not common. Hadrosaurs were duck-billed herbivores roaming North America in the Cretaceous period and preyed upon by the less abundant carnivores. Many hadrosaur fossils have been found in Dinosaur Provincial Park, but the team suspects this could be one of the most complete skeletons yet. At the moment, they can only see part of the tail and right foot protruding from the hillside, but the orientation has led them to suspect the fossils are in their original anatomical position, and that there could be much more of the skeleton there, perhaps even the skull. Students working alongside the Royal Tyrrell Museum of Paleontology have already begun digging, hoping soon to reveal whether this small specimen was simply a young dinosaur, or perhaps an adult small enough to qualify as a new species. And even if it's not as exciting as a new species, Pickles notes that younger animals are much less common in the fossil record, so even that would be extraordinarily useful to their studies of hadrosaur development. And the skin, too, will be relevant, quoting CBC. While bones are informative, people who work with dinosaur fossils say there's only so much that can be learned from them. Skin, on the other hand, offers a unique window into understanding these animals from millions of years ago. When you find skin, or even better, internal organs, you can start to look at how these animals were when they were living and breathing, Pickles said. The skin allows paleontologists to learn more about the animal's behavior while they were living, partly by comparing the skin of different animals and other hadrosaurs at different life stages, end quote. The team hopes to complete the excavation over the next two field seasons, and further study will be done then. So like with any of these digs, it will be a long time before we know much more, but it does still hold a lot of promise. Well, obviously, some major world news emerged just as I was finishing up the show today. Queen Elizabeth II passed away today, having been the longest-serving monarch ever in the United Kingdom and second-longest ever in world history, having reigned just about a year and a half less than King Louis XIV. For most in the United Kingdom, she is the only monarch they have ever known. And at this point, you know, I'm not quite sure what I could say that would be relevant to a show like this. I have some personal thoughts on the politics of it all, but as this is a show more about interesting facts, here's what I'll throw out for now. As Matt Glassman pointed out on Twitter, if we start at the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, Queen Elizabeth was in power for a full third of U.S. history. She was crowned when Winston Churchill was prime minister and Dwight D. Eisenhower was the U.S. president. She presided over 15 different prime ministers, inviting the most recent one, Liz Truss, to form a new government just two days ago. That is a lot of history she was around for and had a hand in. As author John Green tweeted today, quote, history is so much newer than we tend to imagine it being. We are five human lifetimes removed from the Protestant Reformation and eight human lifetimes removed from the Mongol Empire ruling a third of Eurasia. We are fewer than three lifetimes removed from the creation of the United States and fewer than two removed from the abolition of slavery in the US. People often say the US is too stable for a civil war. But we had a civil war one and a half lifetimes ago it just happened end quote and the uk isn't feeling too stable for a civil war either even before the queen's passing and relatedly there had long been speculation that prince charles wouldn't actually go by the name king charles just before recording his office did confirm he will now be known as king charles the However, he had previously considered using another name. Royals can choose regnal names that differ from their first names, usually picking one of their many middle names instead. And the first two King Charleses are associated with the English Civil War of the mid-1600s. Perhaps not quite the vibe he wants to go for right now. King Charles I was the only UK monarch to be executed. Charles II, his son, was the first monarch back in power during Restoration, but he was often mocked and criticized for his womanizing. So not great options to essentially be named after. And over the years, sources have suggested that Prince Charles had considered George, one of his middle names, to be his regnal name, which would make him King George VII and would be a nice honor to the previous King George VI, his grandfather. His other middle names, Philip and Arthur, were technically also up for consideration, so yes, he technically could have chosen to be King Arthur. I've seen people saying that's sometimes considered a cursed regnal name, however. Apart from the baggage and Celtic associations of the legendary King Arthur, the few royals named Arthur over the centuries who were in line to become king died before getting the chance. So, bit of bad luck with many of his names there. But in any case, it will be interesting to see what happens in the UK in the coming months with two major leadership changes in one week and a very long era coming to a close. I'll leave you with Mark Lander's words in the New York Times, quote, The death of Queen Elizabeth II is a watershed moment for Britain, at once incomparable and incalculable. It marks both the loss of a revered monarch, the only one most Britons have ever known, and the end of a figure who served as a living link to the glories of World War II Britain, presided over its fitful adjustment to a post-colonial, post-imperial era, and saw it through its bitter divorce from the European Union. There's no analogous public figure who will have been mourned as deeply in Britain, Winston Churchill might come closest, or whose death could provoke a greater reckoning with the identity and future of the country. Elizabeth's extraordinary longevity lent her an air of permanence that makes her death, even at an advanced age, somehow shocking. End quote. Weirdly so, yeah. Yeah. And no matter your feelings, positive or negative, on monarchy, and of the late Queen in particular, her passing is monumental. A new monarch in the UK is something most of us have never witnessed, and something which will ripple out in untold ways we can only begin to foresee right now. Well, we'll leave it at that for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.